and welcome to the BNB podcast. I'm Stephanie Petrella, the editor in chief of BNB Russia and Ukraine, and I'm joined today by Chris Miller, the director of FPRI's Eurasia program, and David Sacconi, an assistant professor of political science at George Washington University. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Stephanie. Good to be here. Today, Chris and I will be talking with David about his new book called Politics for Profit Business, Elections, and Policymaking in Russia. The book examines why business people run for office and what the consequences are for their firms and for society when they win. There's a lot of really interesting information in this book, so we're going to dive right in. So David, let's start by learning a bit about the background for this book. What inspired you to write uh, about this theme in relation to Russia? Sure. Well, like most first academic books, this is uh, my dissertation with some more bells and whistles and additional analysis. So it's really a story of how I got interested in, uh, in political economy in Russia when I was a PhD student. When I was going back and forth and spending a lot of time at the Higher School of Economics and, and looking for an interesting way to speak about economic development and property rights in, in Russia that focused on the, the personalities and the individuals that were in charge of making policy rather than just the institutional structure, like a, a lot of work before me had been done, and kind of came across this interesting variation across Russian regions, and, and not just the way that United Russia had, had commanded dominant majorities, but that there were lots of business people, not in the legislature, and business people across all of the different parties. So you weren't just seeing a monopoly of economic interests within United Russia, you were seeing small and medium-sized business people joining up with systemic opposition parties, non-systemic opposition parties, and United Russia, and spending lots of money on their campaigns to, to uh, contest power and, and, and try to get seats in these regional legislatures. And I just kind of took a step back and said, wait a second, these legislatures are not just for, for you know, the regime versus its opponents, they're playing this other coordinating um, role within the economic um, aspects of society. This needs to get a little bit more examination. We had some good work done by Scott Gelbeck and co-authors about why business people run, but there was less on the policymaking side and also kind of thinking through what are the different dynamics about why a firm owner would, would sacrifice a fair amount um, in order to contest elections and spend time in a legislature. So one thing that surprised me when I was reading your book was just how prevalent business person politicians are, both in Russia and in other countries. And I think the concept of a politician who's still really actively involved in their company surprised me a bit because I assumed that there would be laws banning this practice. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about legal framework for business people running for office in Russia? And is Russia unique in this regard? No, you know, I, I came with the same priors as you did. I, I thought the world had, had kind of regulated this practice more. And even in Western Europe, moonlighting is really common. So there's only a handful of countries worldwide that say, you know, once you enter public office, whether as an appointed bureaucrat or as an elected politician, you need to cut ties with all of your private sector affiliations. And Russia does this at the, at the federal level. So it's one of the few exceptions where, you know, members of the state Duma, Duma are de jure prevented from running their businesses. And we've seen some pretty high profile events like Gutkov about five, six years ago now getting kicked out of the Duma for his business ties being exposed. Now, there's lots of speculation, you know, suspicion that it's not his business that got him kicked out of the Duma, but you know, this law is on the books. At the regional and local level in Russia, however, there's been very little movement to try to enact the same policy. And that there's 
there's basically no no restriction as far as I can tell. Um, even with new disclosure requirements coming into force um, that that prevent legislators from from keeping one foot in the business world and working on a part-time basis and basically going to their companies three, four days a week in the legislature, if that once a week, if not a couple times a month. So one of the great facts that I thought you uh, had in the book was to look at the cost of running. Uh, and, and the cost is actually really quite high according to the data that you've gathered, $100,000 or so to get in the Omsk regional Duma and maybe $10 million to get in the federal Duma. Uh, so how do we explain why people are willing to pay this much uh, for a seat in the legislature, especially given that this requires them to split their time between business and politics. Sure. And trust me, when I, when I talk about the project people, there's usually a bit of like, well, duh. I mean, of course there's business people in the, pol in the legislatures and running for office. Like they're just trying to help their companies and it's the natural outgrowth of success in the private sector. And, and you know, that was, that was also my conception going into the project, that there was less of a surprise wow factor that the things are being mixed so heavily. But when you start to dig into the dynamic, you first see exactly what you just said, Chris, like it's really expensive. Um, and it's, only available to a small group of business people. You've got to pay for almost all of your campaign costs. Parties in the regions are, are, are just kind of almost empty shells when it comes to financing. They get some underhanded money um, from, the, from the federal kind of organization, the national organization. But if you want to run for office, it's a one man or one woman show and, and you've got to either put up the money from your personal finances or, or raise it from your friends and family, just like you were, you know, raising money for a, a new company you were starting. So that can really add up, especially when it comes to television costs and flyers. And if you're going to engage in some vote buying, um, you're going to pay all of your activists to collect signatures. So yeah, depending on the level of government and the, and the competition of the election and how many people are vying for that seat, the cost can really go into the hundreds of thousands. And that's not considering the time away from your business um, that, and the media exposure. A lot of these business people complain that, you know, when they step into the, the public ring, suddenly all of their dirty laundry, and we saw that we're seeing this a little bit in Habrosk, right? That's a former business person, um, the, the governor, who's being caught up in all of the speculation about what he did before he entered public office is now relevant as a public servant. So it's not like you can just seamlessly divide between the two worlds and there aren't potentially large costs. And that was surprising. And that kind of puzzles out why you would run and the people, the business people that I talked to and, and I think try to make clear in the book is the main motivation for running is that you can't get what you want out of politics without physically being in the policymaking institutions. So as a business person in most countries around the world, let's, they, they think basically outsource political activity. They say, you know, business is already consuming most of my time and resources. Politics is interesting to me, but I just don't have the bandwidth to focus on it. I'm going to hire a lobbyist or I'm going to make a campaign contribution and I'm going to kind of negotiate with the politician to get what I want, but I'm still going to be one or two degrees removed from the political system because that's just not my specialty. That's not my forte and I don't have the resources to spend on it. Well, in Russia, for a variety of reasons, that relationship between politicians and economic interests breaks down, usually because politicians just kind of look the other way, steal the money, um, break their contracts, informal or formal with economic interests. So business people are kind of left holding the bag, 
and they say, well, I still need political access. I need help with regulations. I need help protecting my investments. And now I've got to do it myself because I can't trust the politicians to represent my interests faithfully um, for me, or even politicians to accept the bribe and, and return something in exchange. So that complicated dynamic explains a lot more about why business people run for office and pay these huge costs, whereas in other settings, they would just hire a government relations office to set up shop in whatever state or national capital and push for their company's interest there. So to follow up on that question, um, one thing that I thought was really interesting in the book was you write about how the benefit of becoming a business person politician is actually not about you know, drafting legislation or casting votes on legislation, but rather the real benefit is the deputy request. Um, could you explain what the deputy request is and give some examples of how business people use it to advance their commercial interests in Russia? Sure. And I, I really appreciate that you picked up on it because it's kind of an untold or less told story about how Russian legislative institutions up and down the chain work in that people are, are kind of skeptical that opposition politicians, for example, can do much in a legislature. And I think that's that's correct for the most part, except for this deputy request or deputatsky zapros, which is kind of defined differently across different legislatures, but generally speaking is a kind of mandate that a deputy can hand down to a bureaucrat, kind of like a diktat or a precaz, but it's technically a zapros, where they can direct that bureaucrat to take some action or give some information on basically any topic of their choice. Now you can see this being really helpful if the if the deputy was representing a constituent that was having problem with say a state agency or was facing a uh, kind of an unlawful eviction or whatever the matter might be and the deputy would say well I'm gonna order the bureaucratic agency to look further into this issue and, and make sure that rights are being protected. Now, that powerful tool can also be used to push for private interests. And we there's just tons of examples, no matter where you look, of especially business person politicians using the deputy requests to order an, an inspection of their competitor um, or a kind of regulator to, to show up on their door and start poking around in the documents. We've even so gone so far as you know raids being ordered on businesses where computers have been confiscated all because of a deputatsky zapros. And I think one little tidbit is that the Yukos affair in 2004 was actually initiated by one of these deputy requests from the state Duma. So the thing that, I mean, there were a lot of other gears that were in motion, but there was the deputatsky zapros kind of caught up in the legal machinations against Khodorkovsky and some of the state Duma members used this tool in order to, to initiate investigations and put pressure on business. So it can be used against just about anybody you can. Um, and deputies can, can direct it basically on anyone that they'd like. And they can do a whole wide range of directing the, the, the massive bureaucratic apparatus to hinder, to create obstacles. It, you can't put somebody under arrest. It's not a criminal charge. But you can imagine the, the number of, kind of pitfalls that you could create for for other legal entities in society by getting bureaucratic attention on them, usually in a, in a, a burdensome flavor. So suppose you're a business person that decides you want to get involved in politics. What's the calculus that shapes where and how you decide to run the different parties uh, that you could join running in a party list versus a single mandate district? How do potential candidates think about their options? Well, there's tons of different choices. I mean, the Russian electoral system, as we all know, it, it can be quite complicated. 
especially since they're changing the rules, it seems every single year or two to, to cement ruling party advantage. I think generally speaking, there's two decisions you have to make as a business person. First is whether or not I want to run. And from the book really argues that it comes down to how much do you trust your politicians and how much do you anticipate your competitors are going to try to do the same thing. So if you have a great relationship with a political party or a candidate and you trust that politician is going to represent your interests, then you'll probably take a step back and just make a contribution and go that route. But if that politician is untrustworthy or if your main competitor, like if you're a dairy farm and the other farm down the road is like vying for the seat, you're going to say, well, if he's going to get, he or she's going to get into that legislature, I have to be there too. So those type of kind of collective action dynamics where you're competing against other people in your sector and also worrying about politicians um, shirking their responsibilities are going to drive that first decision of whether or not you want to get involved. Now, you get involved and you're saying, okay, well, do I want to join a political party or should I, you know, contest one of these heralded single member district seats um, where I'm my own boss? And I find that business people really prefer the latter option. They would rather avoid all relations with politicians if possible because it gives them a ton of more autonomy to maybe not show up to votes and be an absentee legislator and not have a party leader knocking on their door saying, we need to instill discipline within the party. We can't have you just doing your own thing. If you have an SMD seat, that gives you a lot more flexibility to, to kind of make your own rules to some extent at, in, inside the legislature, even within the Duma or um, at the regional level. So it's very attractive to, once, you've, once you're paying all the costs of the election, not having another party breathing, not having a party breathing down your throat saying, well, because you're affiliated with us so formally and we gave you a seat on the party list, um, this is, it's really important that you toe the line, um, whatever that might be, vote in this way, show up, um, interact with your constituents, make donations to other party members, all that kind of, all that stuff that comes with party membership. And then one other thing is like, so who do you send from the firm? So you, you imagine that there's five or six qualified people from your company that all conceivably could go into the legislature. Can you delegate? Can you send your son who maybe runs marketing? Um, can you son, send your right-hand man who's been with you since the start um, instead of yourself? And the book talks about how important personal popularity is. And then a lot of CEOs choose to run for themselves for office instead of delegating to somebody else within the firm because, A, they want to ensure that they win the election and that other people don't have the same name recognition that they do. But also that if you put in that second or third tier guy from management, they might be really ineffective and weak in the legislature. And you need that, need that name recognition, not only to win office, but also to, to win the battles within the legislature, to get policies through, to get your Depiskowski's Zaprosi actually kind of implemented by the bureaucrats. So there's this other dimension that depending on how you see things working on your legislature, you might have to run yourself um, as the big big man CEO in your, in your region and you can't delegate to somebody else who conceivably could do the work but just doesn't have the pull in the legislature going forward. And so one final question, mm -hmm. a central question in your book is about what, what is the effect of having so many business people as politicians? Do they govern differently than ordinary politicians? Um, you know, even in the United States, there's this discourse about how business people will run government like an efficient business. And so what is the, what is the evidence from Russia suggest to answer that question? Well, to be succinct, it's, it's not great from a normative standpoint. 
and like you said, a lot of politicians around the world say, I have this extensive business record. I'm going to make government run like a business. I'm going to introduce management techniques and new ways of thinking about efficiency to improve the mechanics of government and make it run more like the private sector because we tend to think that the capitalist way of organization is superior and why not make the public sector work that way. So it's a very, very often heard, commonly heard campaign, piece of campaign rhetoric. When you put that to the test in Russia, and I should say that this aligns with, with forthcoming data from the United States where people have done similar research designs looking at the difference between business person politicians and other types, whether they be lawyers or doctors or whoever is going into public office. So when you compare outcomes down the line, both in this book in Russia and elsewhere in the United States, you find that business people think first about themselves and their own firms. So unsurprisingly, their firms do really well, um, up huge gains in revenue and profitability um, when a CEO is sitting in elected office. So Putting that aside, like the, the connected firms are going to benefit from a political connection um, to, to, a, to a substantial degree. But then you also have to think about all the other policies that affect more kind of day-to-day citizens. Um, and, and there you find that business people push for the interests of the business community, oftentimes at the expense of what citizens actually want. So in Russia, you see incredible investments in, in infrastructure, uh, whether it be roads, um, electricity, other types of um, utilities, and also a lot of money going into kind of shady or uncompetitive procurement contracts that are connected with these initiatives. And you might think, well, roads in Russia are really bad. Doesn't everybody want better roads? And it turns out that, you know, on most public opinion surveys, roads are 10th out of 25 in priorities. So people really want help um, with a ton of other social issues, especially healthcare and education, but there's, they, they're also concerned with their own livelihood and unemployment insurance. And, and infrastructure, no matter how visible it is, is not always top of the minds for Russian citizens. So you see this disconnect that business people come into office and they make government work for business and spend a lot of money on things that business people want, but that doesn't align with what their constituents want. So you have this disconnect in accountability and representation, or you get really descriptive representation. The type of candidate that you elect is really gonna predict the type of policies you're gonna get. And in this case, if you elect a business person, you're gonna get really pro-business policies. And I argue at the expense of, of public welfare in many respects. David, it's a fascinating set of, of issues and it seems relevant not only to Russia, uh, but also to other countries uh, too. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us about your new book, Politics for Profit. I appreciate you uh, joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me.